All right. This is the last lesson in both of our series. The other series has been done for a couple of weeks. But this is the last lesson in the series on who rules. And we're going to be leading into a new series about discipling the way Jesus discipled. Learning how Jesus interacted with his disciples and seeing his interaction with them. And then what does that mean for us today? As we are doing what he's called us to do. As we are going out and we're discipling. We're living the life of a disciple. We're preaching. We're teaching. We're, we're baptizing. We're doing the things that Matthew 28, 18 through 20 talks about. What does that look like in our lives? So this last lesson here about who rules, uh, hopefully will get us to that thought process of discipling the way Jesus discipled. Because if we want to live a life that is ruled by God, then we've got to do what God says, right? Amen. We've got to do what Jesus says. I'm no longer my own person. I don't get to make the rules for me. You don't get to make the rules for you. I don't make them for you either, and you don't make them for me. We live by God's rules. We live the way he designed us to live. That's the good way to live, period. If he made life, he knows how to live, right? He knows how we should live. And in this world, I think, I don't know if you've been tempted to ever take the easy route. Anybody ever been tempted to take the easy route? Sure. I have. And in almost in any situation in life, there's probably something that could lead you to an easy way. I mean, even in video games, I remember when I played video, well, I still play video games. <laughs> Much to, well, I know I'm, I'm old, but I still like them. But uh, I remember way back when you had cheat codes you could put in. Cheat codes in the back of magazines that you could look up to help you with the games, to make them easier. Although, ironically, at first it makes it easier, but then it kind of ruins the challenge of the game, too. And it kind of makes it uh, not as fun, because all of a sudden, you do whatever you want. The, the, the reins are off. I mean, it's, it's, no, it's not a challenge anymore. But in every aspect of life, there's an easy button, even on TV, right? That, that office store likes to sell you that easy button. You need some help? Just hit that easy button, and you got it. At school, you didn't study? Cheat off the guy in front of you or the girl in front of you. The easy button. Right? Cheat. cheat. Why not? Cheat codes for games. Cheat, cheat, cheat. Easy button. That, that's kind of how you could live your life. And I think that's how you could try to live your spiritual life too. You could try to cheat. You try to take shortcuts. But where are the shortcuts going to take us? I don't think they're going to take us to where we need to go. Jesus himself doesn't take shortcuts didn't take shortcuts, and I think that if we're going to live the life that Jesus has called us to live, then shortcuts aren't available to us either. We don't get to just sit here and, and osmosisly, you know, soak up God's word and then all of a sudden turn around and just be these amazing Christians. It, it takes some effort. It takes some willingness to do what God is asking us to do, to make that choice. Like, like Bill talked about this morning, if, if our hearts are not making a choice to come to God... Well, we've, we've kind of made our choice. But when we make the choice to have a heart that is after Christ, after God, that's an ongoing choice, too. It's an ongoing process. It's a choice that keeps on making, or we have to keep on making. Do you mean? And if you're going to follow along with me in the Bible, go to Luke chapter 9. Because <clears throat> if, that, if that kind of life, if uh, cheating life, you know, making things easy, seeps into our spiritual life, it's going to ruin us. 
<clears throat> Excuse me. In God's kingdom, success is not an elevator. It's a cross. That's where success comes through. Life comes through death. Victory comes through death. Victory from, comes through giving our lives to him. Our spiritual potential never lies in the seat that we're sitting in this morning or the seat that we carry around with us. Our potential lies in the sacrifice of Christ. <clears throat> in Luke chapter 9, 51 through 53, <clears throat> he says something here that he says on other occasions, and I'll give you those verses. We won't look at all of them, but he says this several times. And it came about when the days were approaching for his ascension that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. And they did not receive him because he was journeying with his face towards Jerusalem. Now, it alludes to this, this resolutely setting his face, or he is on his way to Jerusalem several times. In this book here, if you look at 1322 or 1711 or 1831 through 38, you'll see a similar thought. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He has resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. He's not going to be stopped going to Jerusalem. And he tells a parable before he goes to Jerusalem. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Back in chapter 19 there, <clears throat> of Luke chapter 19. Go over to Luke chapter 19, sorry. There's a parable that he says, a couple of them, in these chapters around 19, <clears throat> that lend to the idea of you're not going around Jerusalem. Jesus is not going around Jerusalem. He has set his face towards Jerusalem, and that's where he's headed. Luke chapter 19. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 11. And while they were listening to these things, he went on to tell a parable. Why? Because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went, on, went to a dis distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. He called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him. They hated him. And they sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. Came about when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom had been given money be called to him in order that they might know what business they had done. He might know that what business they had done. And they first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. There's the first one. It's made ten minas more. He said to him, Well done, good servant, good slave. Because you've been faithful in very little thing, be in authority over ten cities. A second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, You are to be over five cities. And another came, saying, Master, behold your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you. Because you are an exacting man, you take up what you did not lay down, and reap what you do not sow. And he said to him, By your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. And he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who shall be, shall, to everyone who should, 
who has shall be given more. <clears throat> but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. And after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. <clears throat> now this parable, <clears throat> this parable in the context here, I think he's, he's saying, you've got to decide here. Who is going to have authority? Jesus is, is challenging the authority, and he's saying, who's, who's, who's having authority? Who is the one that, that has authority here? He's pointing to himself as the one having authority. And the next parable will also bring that out, that, that at this point in time, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and others question Jesus' authority all the time. Who are you? Why are you doing this? Who gave you the authority to do this all the time? And he's now, as he's heading towards Jerusalem, as he's, as he's getting ready to do what he has come to do, the pinnacle of history here is about to happen. This parable here says, you've got to decide who is in charge. Who is the one with authority here? Who are you going to serve? And Jesus is throwing down the gauntlet here, and he's saying that the citizens of God's kingdom are going to be responsible for God's work. He's going to make you responsible. He's going to ask you to work in his kingdom. Mm -hmm. He's going to give you something to do, and he expects you to actually do something in return. And he's going to come back, and you're going to give your report to him. And he says specifically in here, I've got money here, and I want you to take care of this money. And, and they invest this money. They make more money, and, he, and they're doing what the master is asking them to do. But the first two servants, they say, we accept your authority. We we. We submit to your authority, and we will do your will. For the third servant, he is not only rejecting the authority, but I, th I believe he's actually hoarding what God has given him. And he's saying, I'm not, I'm not doing anything with this. Maybe he's too scared. Maybe he's too scared to do something with it, but he's not doing anything with it. He's hoarding the mysteries, the, 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 the almightiness of God here. And Jesus comes back in this very and he says, what have you done with my stuff? I haven't done anything. Why not? It kind of reminds me of the, the spiritual leaders of the time. Jesus comes back and he says, what have you done? But we haven't done anything. We're hoarding things. Why are you hoarding things? Why are you refusing the kingdom to these people? Why don't you understand what's going on here? You're testing my authority. Let me tell you who has authority. I have authority. Jesus has authority. If you go over to chapter 20, again, this, this idea of authority, <clears throat> his authority, comes into question. <clears throat> right off the bat in chapter 20, when he's teaching the people and preaching the gospel, verse 2, they spoke to him saying, Tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Or who's the one who gives you this authority? And so what does he do? In typical Jesus fashion, he turns the question right back around on them. And he asked them that question, is the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And of course, they are stuck between a rock and a hard place, aren't they? They reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death for they're convinced that John was a prophet. And they answered in verse 7 that they did not know where it came from. And in verse 8, Jesus says... Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Amen. And then he launches into another parable. 
as they're struggling with the authority of this one, Jesus the Christ, who is proving over and over again that he is the Messiah. And they're, saying, they're proving over and over again that they're missing the point here. Chapter 20, verse 9, he goes into this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers. He went on a journey for a long time. And at the harvest time, he sends a slave to the vine growers in order that they might give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him, sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third. And this one also they wounded and cast out. And the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What therefore will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, May it never be. But he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but whomever on, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood what? That he spoke this parable against them. They got his message here. And they watched him, sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so as to deliver him up to the rule and authority of the governor. Now, Jesus draws a picture here. In this parable, I think Jesus draws a picture of, of Israel's history. Their long religious history. And God is saying through Jesus, and Jesus is saying over and over again, God sent people to you over and over again. And what did you do? You killed them. You ran them off. And then, over and over, God sends. And finally, who does he send? He sends his son. And what happens with his son? You do the same thing. You're going to do the same thing to his son. This one who has the power, this one who has the authority, is right now saying, you are just like your father's. You're going to do exactly what your fathers did. But what's amazing about this, because they want the authority. They're going to appeal, like in verse 20. They're going to uh, deliver him to the ruler and authority of the governor. They're going to deliver him over to an authority that is not really an authority at all. They're going to take the authority and deliver him to pseudo-authority. And in fact, when Jesus goes to the cross at Jerusalem, that's God's power on display, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's not God's weakness on display. That's actually God's power on display. That's right. And he, shoo- he shows everyone at that point what real authority looks like. It looks like a Savior dying on the cross. It looks like a Savior dying for our sins. At Jerusalem, man's limitation is really shown, not man's power. They might have thought for a second, man, aren't we awesome? We got rid of our problem. But what that really showed is just how very limited they were to begin with. God shows his power. But to do all this, where did Jesus have to go? He had to go to Jerusalem. He had to go to Jerusalem. 
The cross is at the center of understanding the nature of God's kingdom. Not earthly power. Not my power, not your power. Not someone sitting at the right hand of Jesus like he's already argued. You don't, you don't even know what you're asking for to sit at my right hand or my left hand. You don't understand what you're asking for. That's not the power you need here. It's the rule of God in men's hearts. It's the rule of God, it's the rule of Jesus in men's hearts to affect change. That's the power that you need. You're missing the power altogether. You're missing the authority altogether. And in fact, it's, it's the rule of God in rejected people's lives, in hurt people's lives, in broken people's lives. As every single one of us in here have been rejected, broken, hurt. And perhaps we are right now hurting, rejected broken the power that God wants to show us is a power that takes those broken shattered people and makes them a people of his makes them a whole people makes them a wound, uh, from a wounded person to a transformed person people who know they're guilty but also know because I'm guilty I need forgiveness I need to be washed I know I'm guilty. I know I've made mistakes. In fact, that's what Jesus says in Luke 4. When he announces his mission, he says, I'm going to the people who are broken. I'm going to the people who know they need help. I'm going to the ones that, that have lost their sight. I'm going to those people. And you and I are those people. But in doing all of this, Jesus had to go to the cross. Jesus had to go to Jerusalem. And I think so do we. This is, this is where we come in here. When we're talking about you can't go around Jerusalem. Jesus, to do this, could not go around Jerusalem. He had to go to Jerusalem. That was God's plan. That was Jesus' plan. And like the text said, he set his face resolutely. He was not going to be stopped or deterred. God was not going to be thrown off track. This was going to happen. But it had to happen at Jerusalem. <clears throat> and so do, so do we. I think we have to go to Jerusalem, too, metaphorically speaking. You and I have to go to Jerusalem. Because where is the cross? It's there. Where am I going to go to meet Jesus? It's there. I can't hit the easy button and scoot around Jerusalem. I got to go where he went. I got to go meet him at the cross he died on. I got to go be at the foot of the cross that he died on and shed his blood on. And to do that means that I have to give my life totally and committedly to Jesus Christ. In fact, that means I need to start serving real needs of real people in real time. When people have real needs, I need to get out there and help them. When people call on the phone and you can do something, do something. We need to be real with people because Jesus was absolutely real with us and we need to be real with other people. And by going to Jerusalem, just like Jesus, he died only to be risen again. By our going to Jerusalem, we die. But what does that give us when we die? Somebody tell me, what, what does that give you when we die? That way. When we go to the cross. Salvation. Eternal life. Real life. Real abundant life. The life that God wants us to have. A life that is totally surrendered and being transformed by Jesus Christ. That's the life that we find by dying. But if we don't die. If we try to hit that easy button. We don't get that life. We have to die. We have to die just like he did. And he asks us to die. Who does he ask us to die to? Yourself. The world. Get rid of this, this I'm in charge. 
get rid of this, it's my way or the highway. It's now God's way or the highway. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's the only way. By taking up this cross daily, I think that we ultimately find that joy of faith. And by surrendering, we ultimately find who really conquers. It's that juxtaposition that you find in Christianity. By dying, you find life. By surrendering, you become a conqueror. But why is that? Because we die to self. We live in Christ. Christ is the one that makes us the conqueror. Christ is the one that does all of this stuff to us. And so here, here's what I want you to take away. I want you to take away two things. And for one, of the first thing I want you to take away, go back to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. The verses we read were 51 through 33. <clears throat> I want you to notice what verse 53 says. When, he, when he's going to Jerusalem, he sends messengers on ahead. And in verse 53 it says, They did not receive him because he was journeying with his face towards Jerusalem. He wants to go to a village of Samaritans. He wants arrangements to be made for him to go through this way. But they say, no. We don't want you to come through. We're not, we're not going to follow through with the arrangements. We're not going to make it. We're not going to do that. And one of the reasons I think they may not be in the mood to do this for Jesus is why that, that stupid nationalistic pride. He's not coming for them. He's coming. He's going to Jerusalem. For festivals, he's going to Jerusalem for the Jewish feasts and things like that. But the Samaritans also know that if you're not coming to us, then what's the point? Go around, go around. If you're going for your feast, just just go around. I'm not going to give you a safe passage through here. I know, I know we don't want you to come through here. Now that, that's what I think. I'm th- I think that this is one of the reasons it makes a point of saying they don't receive him. They don't. They don't want him. They don't want him to stop. They don't want him to do this. So. He's, gonna not, he's not going to do this. <clears throat> and when I look at that, that section there, and I, and I think about Jesus' rule in our life, so many times I've been a Samaritan, and I've said, no, Jesus, just go around. I don't want you coming through. I don't want you to come through my life. I don't want you to, to, to stop and, and, and spend some time with me. Just go around. And maybe you're at that point today. We're talking about ruling our life. If I'm the one in charge, then that's what I'm telling Jesus. If I've decided that I know what's best for my life, then I'm saying, no, Jesus, you just go around. There's no reason to really stop here. There's no reason to spend time here. Because I'm not going to accept your rule anyway. I don't want what you're selling anyway. You're not coming for me or you're going to someone else's house. Just just go around. Now, that, that, that can come in many forms, I think, and that can come from someone who's just saying, period, I don't want your rule in my life. I don't want you to be in my life. Go around. It could also come from me saying, I'm going to let resentment build up in my heart against somebody, my brother or my sister, and say, Jesus, just go around. Just go around that resentment. Everything else is okay. Just don't mess with my resentment against Darren because I'm really happy being irritated with my brother Darren. And he and I have a problem, and we're not working it out. And that's fine by me. So Jesus, go around that. I'm not giving you that part of my life. 
It could be a, like like uh, was said last week with Randy, the the toxic relationships, or you could be wounded, and and you're just saying constantly, Jesus, just go around that. I don't I don't want you to touch that part of me. But Jesus is not willing to just go around. He doesn't want to just go around us. He wants to come in us and dwell in us. It might look like that, or it might look like me harboring some sin in my life and just saying. You know, Jesus, I've, I've done everything else, but this part of me, I'm not so worried about. I like this part of me. Just go around that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep on doing this for whatever reason. I'm going to keep on, on doing this. I keep on falling back into this sin because I don't let you in. I don't let you into that part of my life, Jesus. I'm, I, don't want, I want you to go around me. Don't come in this part. Now, now, that could be for someone who doesn't make a decision to have Jesus in their lives at all and say, I don't need you. Go around. To a Christian who's struggling and saying, I like being in, in conflict with my brother or sister. Or, you just can't help me, Jesus. Go around that part. And if we don't let him in, if we're not willing to have our hearts changed by him and, and be molded and shaped and, and, and do some hard things, we're not going to be changed. He's got to come in. If we send him around, you know what he'll do? Well, he'll, he'll go around. Because he doesn't, he doesn't just forcibly enter into He doesn't forcibly say, nope, you're going to change. No, it's got to be a partnership here. I've got to say, I want to change, Jesus. Come on in. Let's change. But if I say, nah, go around, Jesus, then he's going to go around. Because he's not going to force me. So the first thing I want you to take with you is maybe you've got a Samaria in your life. Maybe you are Samaria right now and you're just telling Jesus, no, I don't need you. Go around. Maybe you need to, to rethink your position and, and find out if Jesus really needs to make his way through you. Because I think he does. Really needs to come in and make arrangements for him. Let him come in and dwell and eat and, and talk and fellowship. Don't send him around. The second thing I want you to think about too is if you're not sending them around, then what is your Jerusalem? Because I think we all have a Jerusalem in our life. That's that thing that I know I've got to do. But I don't really want to do it. I struggle with that. Jesus himself struggled with Jerusalem in the garden praying. There's another way. Please let this cup pass for me. But let your will be done. A lot of times I've had Jerusalems in my life where I know I need to go there and it's going to cost me, but I don't want to. I don't want to do that. If you're not a Samaria, maybe you're a Jerusalem. You know, I've got, I've got a compass around my house. I can't tell you where it is right now because I haven't used it in I don't know how many years. Uh, but I've got a compass lying somewhere in my room or somewhere in my garage on some shelf. <laughs> I can't find it, but if I found it, what would it tell me? It would tell me where north is, wouldn't it? It would tell me the direction to go if, I'm, if I want to head north, if I want to head south. It'd tell me where I need to go, but the fact that I've lost the, the compass doesn't mean that the compass is not sitting there true to itself. It's just that I, I haven't found it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not finding that compass. It, I lose that. But it never loses true north. I think the cross that waits for us at Jerusalem is that compass in our lives. 
we, we, we may misplace it, but when we find it, what is that cross doing? It's pointing true north to Jesus Christ. It always points to Jesus Christ. That cross at Jerusalem always points to him. That always points to Jesus Christ. You may not know where it is. You may have misplaced it on one of your shelves, but it is pointing to Jesus. You need to find that cross. You need to find that compass. You need to get up off your butt and go to Jerusalem. Or you need to let Jesus come in through Samaria. Whichever section you're in, there is something that God is saying, I need you to do this. I have sent my son. I've sent prophets. I've done this. What are you doing? Are you going to let me in? And are you going to let me rule your life? Are you going to let me transform you from the inside out? Or are you going to fight me, send me around and say, no, thank you. We don't need you. It's your decision. It's our decision whether or not God rules our lives. It's our decision whether or not we let Jesus transform us from the inside out and create in us a new person. I'll tell you what, I think, I, I think people sitting here this morning are people who want to be transformed by Jesus Christ, who want to live every day more and more like him and look more and more like him every day. That might mean you need to go to Jerusalem. That might mean you need to stop being Samaria. Stop sending him around and let him come in. Let him dwell with you. Let him sit with you. Sit with him and his word. Don't tell him to go around. That's not where the cross is. The cross is at Jerusalem. And you need to get there. So today, when you ask yourself, are you, are you heading towards Jerusalem or are you acting like a Samaria? Remember where the cross is at. Remember where you need to set your face resolutely to. The one who constantly points true north. The cross of Christ. Jesus Christ himself. The one who transforms, forgives, saves, redeems, and cleanses all of us. Ask yourself, which, which, which direction are you headed today? And which direction will you head for the rest of your life? As we stand and as we sing.